Quick disclaimer. The hosts of this podcast, Matt, Joey, and I, are not mental health experts. We are not licensed or certified in any way. We may share our personal experiences and we may mention the medications we're taking, but we are not offering medical solutions or advice. We may discuss some very heavy topics, including suicide. If you're struggling with a mental illness or if you're having suicidal thoughts in any way, please seek professional help. If you're having an immediate crisis here in America, you can dial 988 to reach the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Heavy Mental Podcast. If you don't know, we have a website, heavymentalpodcast.com. It's got links to all of the podcast platforms where you can listen to this, which you must already be on one of those. And uh, we've also got a link to our Discord on there so we can chat with you guys. That's been really fun. Uh, Today, we have our first guest, Tara, who is a therapist, an actual mental health professional, so she knows a little bit more about what she's talking about than any of us. During this recording, Tara brings up what is called IFS, and IFS is based on the idea that instead of being only one person, we all hold multiple parts within us. It's a core self and multiple sub-personalities that relate to each other, in the same ways that members of a family might relate to each other. The goal of IFS therapy is to establish a healthy and balanced relationship between the different parts of ourselves and the core self. Yeah, that's right. And if you want to know more about IFS therapy, we're going to put that in the show notes. So along with some other recommendations that Tara has for books and those sorts of things. So let's do it. Guys, we have a very special episode today. It's a dear friend of mine who I've known for a very long time. Her name is Tara. She is here. She is in the counseling therapy world. And I don't want to speak for her of exactly what she does or what her title is. So I'm going to let her do that. But Tara, thank you so much for joining us. You are so welcome. Thanks for letting me be here. Feels like an honor. Tell everybody what you do, what the label is, so that we can kind of just let everybody know where we're headed. So I'm a licensed professional counselor, and that's my official title. And I have a private practice here in Athens, Georgia. Is there anything you specify in as far as your type of counseling or care? I don't know if there is, you know, different sections of that of kind of what you specialize in. Yeah. So in my private practice, I'm would be considered a trauma-informed therapist. And my approach or my modality is like family systems. So I just like to just begin with clients trying to understand where they've come from so that I can understand what has shaped them, what has molded them, because it gives me a, a clearer picture and it gives them a clearer picture of where they are today. Then we can start building on tools to to get them the where they want to be. Got it. So is it focused around families or is it individualized? Does it vary? Is it married couples? Yeah. So I, in in my practice, I see a lot of couples. I see a lot of individual adults and college students because we're here in a college town. I don't see any kids unless they belong to existing client. And then I will do family work just since my approach is family systems. Joey and Shane are both here with me. We're going to we're just going to feed off you today. I'm very excited just to learn a little bit more about you and kind of what the counseling therapy side of things looks like. Guys, do you have any questions off the top here for her that you want to get to? Yeah. Thank you for being here and nice to see you. Um, no, I, yeah, nice to see you. I think you said it good, Matt. Um, uh, it's interesting that you are in a college town. I imagine that therapy is becoming more and more needed in that world right? Yes. How long have you been in practice? This is my seventh year. So my story is a little different. I, um, I was looking at master's. My, my undergraduate degree is child and family development from UGA. And I was looking at master's programs in counseling when I met Andy, my husband, and the rest is history. We got married and he, he actually went to school for his master's. And we left that program um, after he graduated with our first child. And I spent Lucky enough, I was able to spend um, 15 years at home with all three of our children. And then, and then, and then, you know, it was finally time for me to get to pursue something that had always been a desire of mine. And that was just to, to be a, a professional counselor and help people. So was that desire always there 
or was there kind of a catalyst that you said, I need to be doing this? I always just felt a pull to to be able to help people. I mean, I have stories of just being even a young girl, child even, just very aware of of people and interested in story and people's experiences. And I just, I mean, it goes back to just even in childhood. So I've always been pulled to to want to help people. So when I was 40, I went back for um, my master's degree and I'm now 50 and I've been practicing for, yeah, seven years. Wow. And during that seven years, this is, this is probably a little bit of a tangent, but you know, that means that you've been practicing through the pandemic. I mean, have you noticed since the pandemic or during that seven years, have you noticed things? I mean, I want to just say getting worse, like as far as mental health goes. Yeah, I really have. You know, honestly, my practice, and and I hate to say this, but it thrived during COVID. And it was because so many people were isolated and really struggling. And I think also when you experience something like COVID, it just unearths things in us, right? Because we're powerless or we have that sense, that felt experience of powerlessness, and it unearths story in us. Experiences prior where we might have felt powerless, and you do see more of a, an you know, an increase in in symptoms of mental health issues. And so, there was not one single practice here in Athens that was low during the pandemic. And I would say there definitely has been a rise sure. in the last you know five to seven years. Have you seen an increase in diagnoses? Like, do you see more people coming in who are diagnosed with like you know what we have bipolar or clinical depression and or severe anxiety, like what are you seeing there? Yeah, I'm mostly seeing, I'm most, I am mostly seeing bipolar, uh, clinical depression, severe anxiety disorders with panic, anxiety attacks, and, and also just a, just a ton of people who just baseline, you know, it may not be severe, it may not be severe symptoms that they suffer from, but just a baseline of just living with anxiety, living with depression. For someone that's been on the front lines of this, and Shane and I have talked about this rather recently, about how the pandemic and COVID really was like a shotgun going off as far as isolation is concerned. Not only could you not go out, but grocery stores started doing groceries right to your door. You can get so many, so much like restaurants bringing you food everything, medications, all of this stuff. And so it really sparked an environment that if you're a homebody, you don't have to leave. And I think that that's playing a lot into the isolation issue that can really develop a lot of mental health issues. Do you think that that has played into a a factor at all in the rise of people coming to counseling? Yeah, I absolutely think that it's it's on the rise. And honestly, it's not just for people who are, uh, pres- you know, would consider themselves more homebody. It's even for just honestly, we just live in a culture where we want instant gratification. And so I think just the rise of being able to order your food and have it door dashed, you know, order your groceries and having being able to pick it up in the parking lot, have it have them brought to you, you know, to your car. I think all of that has just produced just a, a culture of oscillation where we're we're trying to get things so fast that we're not taking time to be with. People are born into it now. It's like the norm. Like yeah. I think about my kids, you know, the norm is we get things delivered. We get we go pick up our stuff and usually someone brings it to our car like that. There is like a new baseline. And also think we just spend so much time distracted by, you know, I mean, I love social media. I think it, there's a lot of goodness to it. But I do think that there's a false sense of connection and intimacy that that's created in, in social media. Particularly just even you know, intimacy feels like a big word, but just connection. I would say my college students genu- genuinely would say they feel connected, but they're not because they're not necessarily connecting face-to-face as much as they were, you know, 10 years ago. And how does that bring in, you know, you said bipolar is on the rise. I, I have, that's so interesting to me because, you know, we're ta- you're talking about people, I imagine, who are in their 30s, right? Maybe 40s who are coming in with bipolar. The pandemic didn't give them bipolar. It's like, that's something that I, as far as I understand, you're you're born with that predisposition and then it gets activated at some point. So maybe that's the thing. Is it like more people 
are being activated because of the way that our culture is and our and our society? Or are they just okay to talk about it now? I too? think so. Yeah, or is it just becoming less stigmatized? Yeah, and people are more comfortable opening up about it. It's it's probably all the above. Yeah. And I do think that we're just born as humans trying to we all are born with like a response to stress. We we learn early on how to cope under pressure and under stress and in hard situations. And so I think for a lot of people that are, you know, just becoming clear about their diagnosis, I would say a lot of those people would say, I just I just coped really well when I was younger and and it worked until it didn't. And now it's not working anymore. My coping strategies that I've always used. And I don't know if you guys could speak to that, but I do think we we do have coping strategies and they work for a really long time and then they stop working as well. Really? Oh, you definitely. Like just for people, like because they use them for too long or just talking about in general for everybody. I think in general for everybody, regardless of your diagnosis, I think we, we are, you know, and this is just a family systems approach that I'll share, you know, just we're all born into families and we all have a role in the family. There is goodness in the role that we play in our families and there is a burden to it. Um, I would say for most people, there's a burden to a role that you play in your family. And then we all develop coping strategies in order to keep home comfortable for everybody, you know, to keep us at homeostasis in our families. We create coping strategies. They just develop and we go through life using those and they work until they stop working. And then I think you see more symptoms of of anxiety, depression on the rise. Well, I'm sure you constantly, I mean, especially in the last seven years, obviously, because you've been a part of that, you see a lot of people coming into you at their worst. Whether it be depression, mania, severe anxiety, like you had already mentioned in the family systems world. But what is something that you do or that other people hearing you talk about it as far as providing like a healthy space for them? Let's just say Shane comes into a session with you and he he struggle he struggles with suicidal ideation. He's bipolar type two, constantly depressed. What kind of safe place or a healthy space does counseling do for people? The first thing that immediately comes to my mind is just creating safety and stabilization for someone who's struggling. Um, So like it it sounds so simple, but just first and foremost, just providing a calm and safe, non-anxious presence can help ground someone whose nervous system is dysregulated or has been hijacked. And so just offering that safe space with calm, curious, compassionate care um, without an agenda for someone can stabilize their nervous system. I was going to say, so, and that's probably something that somebody, even if you're not a counselor, if you're just, if you're trying to help somebody who is in that state yeah, for you to just remain calm, you know, that just, that sounds like good advice in general for someone who's trying to help somebody that might be dealing with something like that. Absolutely. Can you tell us what you mean by um, without an agenda? I think I know what you mean by that, but I'd love to know from your perspective what what you mean by that. Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, first and foremost, I think, you know, counselors are human. And and so I think um, counselors have their own their own stories. They have their own predispositions. So I think an agenda can look like a lack of curiosity or you know, when we're really quick to offer answers and solutions that can, you know, so often those answers and solutions are misinterpreted by the person in front of us as dismissing, you know, what their actual experience is. And so uh, this is it's just the opposite of offering empathy and normalization and validation, which is what someone who's struggling actually needs. So I think an agenda, I mean, we could probably name a couple of things that would look like an agenda, but just in general, it's just um, when a when a therapist on parts show up, um, you know, their own coping shows up in a counseling session. That's got to be hard. <laughs> That's because don't you empathize with people? Like you said, from an early I age, know. you remember, you can think of scenarios when you said that, that resonated with me because. Um, I were empathize you- with people and I always have. And I, that's kind of what I heard. Is that what you, you kind of what you were saying with that? So, I mean, I think the opposite of an agenda 
is someone who is offering empathy and normalization and validation. But I think when you sit in front of somebody, I don't know if you've ever experienced like when you're trying to talk to somebody about something you're feeling or thinking or experiencing, um, whether it's a spouse or a friend outside of a therapy session. I mean, obviously, you would hope that a counselor would not have an agenda, although I did want to normalize that. There is a such thing as countertransference where a counselor is, you know, it what, what a client may be going through hits too close to home, you know, for a therapist. Maybe maybe a therapist has, you know, someone in their family who's struggling with something similar or they, you know, so I, I do think that, that that's what an agenda can look like when you you lose the as a therapist or just a person in general who's caring for someone who's struggling. You lose that the calm, the the curiosity, the understanding, the and you want to offer solutions and answers that the person is not necessarily needing in that moment. I experienced that. I, I was with a therapist for about a year and it started off okay, you know, and we, we were doing a lot of history work and we were kind of digging through my past and traumas and all that sort of stuff. But then mm-hmm. I started to have problems with my marriage and mm-hmm. sort of about halfway through uh, meeting with her and found out that she was also going through a divorce and it just turned into like this all of a sudden it was it was just completely unhelpful and it turned into us sort of both complaining about our spouses you know and like part of that's my fault because i was curious about what she thought about a lot of the stuff that was happening in my marriage but it definitely started to feel like she was projecting her own issues onto you know like her recommendations or her ideas were felt like they might have been rooted in what she was going through. Yeah. To me that's that's interesting because you've got to find a therapist right who's who's the right fit for you. Absolutely. And 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 I don't know that I've ever had that. I mean, I've been through so much therapy, but I've never really felt like I connected with the therapist. What what do you think that looks like? What do you think are signs that a therapist is or isn't a good fit? You know, for me, it's I mean, I, just baseline, it has to be chemistry. You know, you have to, you have to feel safe. You have to feel seen. You have to feel heard and understood and valued. You have to feel like the person in front of you is curious. And I I just can't say it enough. Doesn't have an agenda, you know, doesn't see you as someone to fix, but someone to be with um, and to help navigate. So I feel like, you know, with trauma informed care, there's safety, there's choice, there's collaboration there's trustworthiness, and there's empowerment. I want my clients to know that I believe they have everything they need, and and they just need me to help facilitate a process. Y'all, if you need a therapist, we got a good one right here, I think. (laughs) Sounds like it's so far so good. Tara, when someone comes to you and just, I'm not saying they're anti-therapy at all, not at all, but someone that might have been forced into this by a family member or like Shane said, going through a divorce and maybe the the spouse is pushing you towards that or you're with a couple that one of them wants to be there and work some things out. The other one is just going through the motions and checking that box so that they could look better in the future of saying, well, we did therapy and it didn't work. What does that look like in your eyes as far as you being in the room and seeing that and kind of some, you know, some, some notes on that as far as, you know, what people in those scenarios could cling on to as far as understanding that, hey, this therapist is clicking because you might click with one spouse and not the other. What does, what does that look like? I don't know when someone, I, I, I guess because I, because I'm trauma informed and I and I want to empower people and I also want to provide choice. Like choice is so important to me. So it's really, it's really hard to do good work with someone who doesn't want to be there. I think for someone who's just baseline apprehensive about therapy in general, you know, I just consider that resistant. And resistance always needs to be met with understanding and curiosity. You know, no one wants to feel like someone has an agenda for them or that someone knows more about what they need than they do this kind of lends to like power struggles. And the only thing that breaks a power struggle is care and compassion. And so I think people become more open when they feel cared for. And then once someone feels cared for, then you can begin asking someone what they feel like their options are. 
you know, in terms of like, if you're not open to therapy, what do you feel like your options are? I think just giving people a sense of agency and being able to name what their options might be, it makes them more open to a process. And then with care, with compassion, people are more open. They have more space inside themselves. They're at a place at that point where, you know, you asking permission, like, hey, could I offer some feedback or could I make a suggestion? Asking permission and allowing someone choice, it just disarms them. That would be for the person that's just, you know, hey, have you thought about therapy? Mm. Nah, therapy's not good for me. So I guess that question for me, I'm thinking about those people that that are not real sure about starting therapy. I mean, what a practice to do inside your relationships at home. Yeah. Hey, can I ask this instead of, babe, you need to figure this out. Or, hey, this is how you figure it out. Because we know in the mental health world, those things aren't necessarily compatible with the person that you're telling. So I, I feel like that's something that can be taken away from you know, a counseling therapy mindset to bring into the home that could really be super beneficial. And two, there was another thing, I believe we were talking about it last week, Tara, before you... Um, so graciously agreed to come on. It took a little bit of uh, arm bending a little bit. But when you were talking about providing a safe place when someone is coming in, not doing really well, and in a recent situation where I was experiencing kind of psychosis, my wife took my hand and put her hand on my arm as well. And it felt like just two points of contact, like I was secure. Yes. And she also was telling me about what the kids were doing downstairs to get my mind off of what I was dealing with internally. She's saying the kids are downstairs. They just got done eating. Riley didn't eat her food. Now they're building a tent out of the cushions downstairs, a fort all this stuff. And I was able to come out of that very quickly. And it, it just really, it really helped me in that regard. Is that something, is that like a tactic for you? Like, Hey, look around this room and tell me everything that's, that's the color red. Like, is that a practice or something like that? Because I know people at home, you know, it's not just anxiety disorder. It's not just depression. It's not just mania. It's There's a lot of different conditions out there. And I'm trying to figure out kind of some practical things that can help someone when they are having a panic attack. Let's just put it at a baseline panic attack. Yeah. Because if I saw someone having a panic attack, I don't necessarily know what to do. Is there something you can speak into on that side of things? Sure. So I think like I think about it in terms of nervous system. So it's when when someone's in panic or someone has dissociated or someone, um, yeah, is, it, they're outside of their window of tolerance. And I don't know, are you guys familiar with window of tolerance? I mean, that sounds intuitive, but if you could explain, that'd be great. It's just that, that um, and this is just the easiest way for me to explain it. It's that the window of tolerance is that space inside of yourself where you're calm, you're collected, you're connected, you're able to communicate, you can solve problems, you can manage stress, you feel relaxed, you can self-soothe, right? You're, you're in, you're emotionally regulated, you're in your comfort zone. And that's kind of like your comfort zone is kind of like the, the other terminology for window of tolerance. Okay. And so you're in this, this space inside where you're comfortable, you're connected, you can communicate, you can, you're, you're thinking with your prefrontal cortex, right? You, you can, you can think clearly, you can form sentences, you can, you're not hypo or hyper aroused. And so when you leave that window of tolerance, when you're triggered or in a manic episode or in a basic, you know, I don't even want to say basic because people who who I've had a panic attack and, and it doesn't feel basic at all. No, it doesn't. Wherever you go, we, we all have, you know, a different response to stress. And so when you leave your window of tolerance, your, your nervous system has been activated. And so you either go into hyper arousal, which is your fight flight. Um, you, you're, you're acting from a perception of danger. Um, so that's, you're going to see like 
mobilization. It's going to, it's in the, you're in this place where you're going to see anxiety. You're going to see anger. You're going to see potentially rage. You're going to see um, emotional outburst, aggression, irritability, impulsivity. You're going to feel overwhelmed. You may see some obsessive behavior in that hyper arousal state where in the hypo arousal, you're in that freeze, more of a freeze response. And you're in a state of immobilization where you're, you're on autopilot. You're zoned out. You're, you have a flat effect. You're disconnected from self and others. You're emotionally unavailable. You feel numb, zoned out. Your body shuts down. You have memory loss. And, and ultimately, you're disconnected. What brings you out of those states in back into your window of tolerance is just grounding. It's it's You've got to create safety and grounding for yourself. So when Lauren touched you on the arm and began to tell you things that were happening, he was bringing you back into through connection. She was bringing you back into helping you notice what was going on around you, bringing you back into reality. It went through me like a ton of bricks. I remember my my heart rate was like 160 beats per minute while I'm laying down that just ended up spiraling into my heart rate increasing and uh, a fight or flight kind of situation. Like I was scared. I, I got to a point where I was scared. And so that's when that's when Lauren came in and helped with that grounding. And is there is there something practical? You know, they might not have a spouse right there beside them that loves me like Lauren does. I mean, she loves me. No one does. And she does it so well. But is there something practical when someone is seeing someone in this state or even just a lighter panic attack? Is there something practical that they can do that is appropriate, I guess, in that situation? Well, I mean, I think I think your experience was severe, and truly. And so I feel like in, in that kind of situation, the best thing you can do is stabilize and bring into safety. And so she did everything right. And I just want to shout out to Lauren, who I love with all my heart. Right yes. on. Yes. I was going to say Lauren is awesome. When you said that, Matt, I just felt the compassion that she had for you in that moment, because how heavy would that be? To be that for someone, especially your spouse, you know, and if the kids are downstairs, it's like, whoa, what a moment. And Lauren was walking you through that. Well, that is incredible. Sorry. Yeah. And I mean, the questions that she was asking in that moment is what do you need? Like, what can, what can I do? And those were appropriate questions in that time. And, you know, I'm just trying to figure out, I guess, what you're saying they need to be grounded and it's the nervous system and all of that stuff. Is there, is, are there more practices outside of what Lauren did? Some other options that, that create that grounding? Yeah. I mean, I think just, um, you know, it's connection, it's care. It, I mean, it sounds so simple, but like truly most people's first inclination is to help with answer solutions you're fine. You're okay. And and again, I'm I'm not even necessarily talking about um, someone who experiences what you experience. I'm even just talking about just anxiety, depression. We don't even have to label it. We can just talk about people who are standing in front of us who are upset. Whatever might be going on, most people's in first inclination is to help with answers and solutions because they themselves are uncomfortable with what's happening in the person in the person in front of them. Right. Wow. That is so smart. I love what you just said. Keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. I just got fired up. And so answers don't help. Presence does. And I really think we just forget. We forget that we don't have to give answers. We just have to give presence. Safe, calm presence literally grounds the person in front of you just what, because you're mirroring for them something different than what they're actually feeling internally. Is that physical? Is that emotional? Is that conversational? Are all three of those involved depending on the person, how they receive it? Absolutely. So I think it's just, a, it's an, it's an emotional present. It's a physical present. It's care. It's compassion. It's, it's being willing to explore like, Hey, I'm noticing, you know, I don't know if you guys are all parents, but with, with parents and kids, you know, and we forget that we need to do this with adults. That when you notice something happening with one of your kids and they're upset, a good parent's going to say, hey, are you okay? I'm, I'm noticing you don't seem okay. 
And that is just what we call attunement. It's just basic care. It's like you're just attuning to someone. And so I think just that 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 idea of attuning, people heal in that kind of space. You know, when we feel powerless, we seek to control. And, and we think that we've got to, we're somehow responsible to fix what's happening in front of us. But the reality is, is that most people just need care, particularly if a person isn't asking you for, for actual answers. You know, um, I've learned as a, even as a, as a parent to adult kids, you know, unsolicited advice or feedback is, is always interpreted as criticism. And so there's a lot of power in just exploring with somebody what's going on and being present with them and doing a lot of active listening and validating. Like, I see how you feel that way. It makes sense. Yeah, of course you do. I can understand that. You know, that it, it, it disarms people and it brings their nervous systems into regulation. Yeah. When you were describing that, that's exactly what I was thinking about is the conversations I have with my six-year-old. And you do, they just want to be, and everything you're saying, it's, it's like a human thing, you know, almost, I don't know how else to describe it. It is. You want to be heard. You want to be seen. You want to, my two-year-old wants to be seen more than my six-year-old. It's like, it's nuts. It never stops. But I did. I thought about my kids when you said that. And I'm, I'm personally learning a lot about my nervous, like my personal nervous system. Like I told these guys a couple of weeks ago that in the mornings when things are crazy, I'll run outside and I'll be barefoot and I'll stand in the grass for a minute and I'll, I'll do this breathing technique. And I know if my neighbors see me, they think I'm crazy, but I'm like, Hey, I don't want to have another panic attack. This is going to keep me, you know, like controlling your nervous system. And I'm trying to learn how to do it like throughout the day, like for little moments. And it's really, really been helpful. But just little things like these weird breathing techniques that can really bring you back down the level and make you understand, see the world as not such a scary place. You know, that's the way I would describe it. Shane, do you feel like with your experience in therapy, that you've experienced that kind of empathy from a therapist? Well, it's interesting because I'm listening to all this and, you know, we're talking, it seems like we're mostly talking about calming people down. Um, whereas most of the time for me, most of the times that I've needed therapy, I mean, I've always needed therapy, but the times that I've gone to therapy, I don't need to be calmed down. I need to be like calmed up. <laughs> like, I, like, when you're when you're apathetic and when you're flat and emotionless and hopeless and you know somebody touching you on the shoulder you don't need to be calmed down you need to be pulled up somehow from that pit and you know are is that a different does that look completely different than what we've been talking about is that a different tactic or for me and and I'm I, I'm, I apologize if I communicated it that way it it's not so much to, yes, we're calming nervous systems down, but more we're just holding presence for what's worked for you in the past, Shane, when you say that you, you know, you need to be calmed up. You need to, what, what has helped you? Meds. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank, thank God. Yeah. Thank God for meds. But I mean, when you're in that pit of despair, like nothing, nothing has helped that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, well, we've talked, you know, now I have my own coping tools. So, and we've talked a lot about distraction, which distraction is like my number one. I'm not sure if that's healthy or not, but, you know, distracting myself from that, um, which I guess in a way is similar to what you're saying, as far as calming someone down, you're just sort of distracting them from the state of mind that they're in. So maybe, maybe it is similar in yeah, that way. And, you know, we don't have to get too deep into this. Um, but, you know, you, you guys had asked me early on, like what my approach is and, and, you know, the family systems, but it's more than the extended family system, like the outer family system. So I'm, uh, been trained in internal yes. family systems. And it's, oh my gosh. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> IFS, Joey's fired up. If y'all if y'all if y'all don't know about IFS, you're about to learn. Prepare <laughs> yourself. It will change your life. Yeah. Just listen for a moment. Thank you. Take over, Tara. Well, yeah, no. And I and I don't want to it's a lot of information, so I definitely don't want to overwhelm, but when I when I think about um, you know, we just we have we have parts of us that make up the whole of who we are. And so IFS is a non-pathologizing 
modality, basically just understanding the parts of yourself. You're building, or it, IFS allows you to build a relationship with yourself and all the parts that make up the whole of who you are. And so non-pathologizing would mean that like we're not as interested in diagnosing as we are helping you understand the parts of who you are um, and building a relationship with them. And and so yeah, there are there are managers and firefighters, and those those are two forms of protectors in your system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Managers prevent pain, and firefighters extinguish pain. And so I would, you know, just hearing you say that, you know, distraction is my number one coping strategy. It's the, it's the number one thing that helps. I'm like, oh, thank God, you have a you have a distractor part that pulls you out of the pit. Oh, that's a thing. It's a thing. And so, you know, got to look at it as I'm, positive somehow. It, yeah. And the idea is that um, that these these managers um, and firefighters are protecting um, these other parts of you that are are called exiles. And those exiles are just the banished parts of you, the parts of you that are holding and lived experiences that are really hard, whether that be big trauma or small traumas, these Managers and firefighters um, are doing a lot of hard work to help those exiles not have to. We don't want you to have to feel the pain that they carry. Are you trying to? Are you trying to like abolish any of them? You know, that was a question that I had was, and that's something that we've talked about in previous episodes. You know, Joey and I feel like we are going to always be depressed. That that the that we have clinical illnesses. We're living with it. For a long time, I thought of depression as something that I wanted to cure. And I thought that there would be a finish line and that I would be happy, you know, all the time eventually, which is silly now, I realize. But do you see depression, clinical depression, clinical anxiety? Are those things that can be fixed? Or do you think if you have bipolar, you have clinical depression, that that they're more something to learn to live with? So let me say this. I don't think that the goal is to abolish parts of you. Um, I think that the goal would be for you to lead your parts. The sense of self is going to be, there are eight C's, calm, compassionate, connected, clarity, creative. Um, I'm missing some, but there are eight C's of self. And so you're leading from a place of self rather than letting your parts lead you. So what that looks like, you know, is when you're in, when you feel like the part of you that, that is the pit of despair, when you feel like he takes over, he's driving the bus of your life, you're not driving the bus. And you probably know the difference internally. Do you know the difference? Does, can you feel the difference of when you're leading this part of you rather than him leading you? I know when the depression is like on the back burner and and it's more just a presence that's sort of in the in the back of my mind but it's but it's not in the forefront is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, I think that's what I mean. I like to use the analogy of just a bus driver and a bus. You know, you can also use you can also use board of directors around a, you know, in a boardroom around a table but it's like the idea is I don't want any of my parts to be kicked off the bus. They have a seat. They've worked hard for me for a long time and they've been with me for a long time. And so the goal is not for me to to kick them off the bus. The goal is for me to drive and for and for me to offer options to these parts when when they need my attention, if that makes sense. It sounds like what you're saying is there is a purpose for depression that and and that's something I, I don't know if I've ever thought of that until just now, but you know, like, why does depression exist? What What is? Well, you said too, but you don't necessarily name depression. It, it may it may sort of just exist with all of them. Is what you were trying to like? You're in the bus is depression. You're all in the bus. Maybe something like that. Yeah, or or you know, like I'm if if I'm driving the bus of my life, and and I've got lots of parts on my bus. I've got I've got a people pleaser part that's still around. She used to drop the bus and I looked a lot different and my life looked a lot different when people pleaser was driving the bus of my life. He still gets a seat on the bus because her intentions are good. She wants me to love people. She wants me to care for people. She wants me to make people feel special. And so she's one of the best parts of me. But when she's driving the bus, I'm boundaryless. 
I'm operating with no limits. Depression itself is not one of those personalities. Depression is more the result of an imbalance of those personalities. Yeah. You're like controlling a wave almost, right? Like you're, you're, you're managing these parts and being kind to all these parts so that you can control, you know, if like we're, you know, this may not be the right phrasing, but we keep saying living with depression. And I realize that might not be correct. And maybe there is a better way to say it, but like, if you're all in there and you're sort of like controlling this wave and the wave does get triggered, depression does get triggered. And we know that like you just control those parts a little better, right? You become so familiar with the parts of you that make up the whole of who you are that I I wouldn't necessarily say you're controlling depression, but you're but you're you're a kind parent. Look at it like that. It, it's when we're parents, I think it's so much easier to look at things with parents and children. You know, I'm my goal is not to control one of my kids, but my goal is to help them make informed decisions. And I want to offer options. And so many times when one of our parts is driving the bus, they're they're they can be very black and white in thinking. They can be very all or nothing. And so it's like we're the wise old older adult who can help our parts understand there, there may be other options. And so, you know, there, there are other options besides whatever your depression might ask you to do. Yeah. Is attunement at play here, Tara? Shane and I have gotten really close over the past year and it's just been a huge part of my, he's been a huge part of my life. And because of our transparency and vulnerability with each other, I care more than anything and I can see when he is, when something is driving him and it's, and it's an unhealthy imbalance. And is, is that part of the attunement that you You don't know me? You're not my dad, dude. What shade, whatever, (laughs) dude. No, you're absolutely right. I know what you struggle with. Yeah, you do. And so it communicates to me right out of the gate. Like I can tell when you're not yourself. I can tell when you're up and you're down. I did it recently. Like I knew you were experiencing more of mania a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, no, we, we have developed a relationship here where we identify each other's like, Hey, where are you at, man? Or are you sure that's where you at? You're at because uh, I'm maybe seeing something a little different. Similar. I mean, it sounds similar. Yeah. Um, that just to answer your question, Matt, of course, that is attunement. You're, you're checking on him. You're noticing and to be noticed is to be cared for. And so I think whenever you can do that with your friends, your spouse, your children, people you work with, just noticing, just taking the time to say, I see you, you don't seem okay. And so with IFS, you're noticing yourself. So like I've become very aware of, Hey, I, I, I have this part of me that's um, just overly responsible, and she was developed in my childhood and in the story that I that I lived. Felt very responsible in my home. When she's in charge, I feel the weight of the world on my shoulders. You know, I think one of the questions you had asked me is, you know, do you see anxiety or depression or other mental illnesses as problems to be solved or problems to learn to live with? And I literally thought, oh gosh, I don't see them as problems. Like. Feelings aren't bad. They're signals, you know, panic, for instance. It's just your body's way of signaling that you need help. And I would say the same for depression. When you're in the the despair of depression, it it's just your body's way of signaling whatever's going on in your body. So internal family systems also introduces you just to this idea of being very aware of where these parts exist in your body. Because my people pleaser lives somewhere completely different in my body. She shows up somewhere different than my overly responsible part or my thinking part that pulls me out of my heart into my head so that I can begin to solve problems and solutions. And so there's a lot of body awareness. For different disorders, do you find a consistency of what is normally driving the bus? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. When when depression's driving the bus, you're going to there are going to be behaviors that you're going to see um, taking over. And, and it's, it's, it's what might have been, you know, maybe a, a, the best intention to help becomes this overcompensating behavior that's sabotaging. 
so in my bus, keeping with this theme, my bus in my life, a lot of times the driver is this a-hole who wants me to die. <laughs> so a lot of times I've got this personality and this voice that is constantly shouting hey, let's just end all of this. Like, hey, guys, all you other personalities out here, like, wouldn't this all be a lot easier if this was just over? And the only thing that has ever shut that person, that personality up is meds. Despite years of therapy, despite I've done, you know, this IFS stuff, I, I remember from years ago, I, you know, we, I got into it with the therapist. And I guess what I'm trying to ask is with meds, do you think that there have you experienced patients or do you think there are times when meds are just absolutely necessary to shut something like that up? 100%. 100%. I mean, I have had clients suffering, suffering, suffering. You know, I do believe in a team approach to care, especially when you're dealing with significant mental health issues. I love collaborating with psychiatrists and primary care physicians and just a team approach to care. Um, I've had clients who their heads got above water and they were able to think and live and function only with meds. And I just can't say enough how grateful I am that there are meds out there who that can help bring somebody's head above water. The, the guy who wants to end it like that. He was, is it like, he's the guy on the bus. He needs some medicine to help him because you look at it as a person almost or a part, I mean, rather. Absolutely. Yeah, I do. And you guys would have to, I mean, internal family systems is so in depth. It's so hard to to really understand it and make sense of it in, in this short of a time. But I definitely have some books that I can give you so that you can even let your, what's the word? <laughs> Listeners. That's what we're doing. Listeners um, know about that, yeah, yeah. De- I mean, if you have, if you know some of them off the top of your head, absolutely say them so listeners can actually seek those out. Yeah, or we can put them in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I'll send those to you. But a few that come to mind are No Bad Parts by Dick Schwartz, who founded Internal Family Systems years ago, uh, probably thirty years ago. Um, so No Bad Parts, fabulous book, so informative, so helpful. There's exercises at the end of each chapter that help you begin this process of safely getting to know the parts of who you are um, and, and and the key players that show up in big ways. Um, let's see, um, Boundaries for Your Soul, All Together You. Those are two other books. Self-Therapy by Jay Early, really good book. Yeah, we'll throw them in the show notes. That's great. And so what would you say maybe like if there's someone listening? Because me and I, I think of myself before, you know, I let the driver of, of the bus, you know, you know, you can't talk about this stuff. Can't talk about this stuff. Don't tell anybody. And maybe, it, you know, they're, they've been thinking about it. Like maybe I should just like open up to my cousin or my brother or my mom or whatever it might be. What would be like a practical first step for someone that that sounds really scary to do? Because if you, your opinion is it can be good for everybody, and I agree, what what would be like just a practical first step if that's really scary? Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to honor the idea that there are some people who, who, who honestly are living in the shame of what they're experiencing. And so I think shame lives in isolation, secrecy, uh, keeping it to yourself, not sharing connection is the opposite of shame. And so it, you know, but I understand that sometimes people, there are people who come in and they are terrified. They have parts of them that are terrified of, of the exposure of saying, Hey, I'm struggling specifically with whatever they're struggling with. And so, you know, I'm also, as long as I feel like someone is safe, then, then I'm okay with letting a person practice exposing their suffering to me. And building building safety inside that. So you teach them how to talk to someone. You're just modeling. You're yeah. literally just modeling. And then before they know it, they're like, man, I I can do this. I can tell one friend. Yeah. Because the scary part is you're thinking you're going to say that and they're going to be like, what weirdo? Like, because I've definitely, yeah. I've had that response from people. You know, I laid out there pretty but, thick right at the, at the get go. And pe- some people are like, what is he doing? 
And then some people are like, yeah, I'm right there with you. But I don't know. I think that's interesting. So you can talk to someone if you need to, y'all. You can. Just try it. Yeah. Yeah. Tara, your heart has always been influential to many people, especially me and my wife. And I am just so proud of you putting that voice aside of fear and coming on our show today. And this is going to pay so many dividends for a lot of people. The The power of you pushing that fear aside and seeking counsel and seeking quietness and, and thinking through that and getting the bravery and courage to do this is going to pay dividends. This might not be a one-on-one, but this might be a one-on-many. And I think that this is definitely something that you are gifted in. And I just want to say thank you for your time. Thank you for your consistency in loving people throughout your entire life. I've personally seen it. Thank you for listening to Shane and and Joey and myself and being present and offering that safe place. I know we're connected over the internet, but it really feels like we're all at the table and that not only do you care for your clients, but you also care for us and you're caring for our listeners. And we just really appreciate that. I really appreciate it. And, and I do just want to say this. This is like a last little moment and it, you may, it may not even make it. But um, I really don't feel like just in the in the spirit of honoring my parts, um, I don't feel like I pushed her aside. Um, I feel like she allowed me to offer her another option and sh- and I held safe presence for the part of me that was scared to death to do this. And so she didn't feel alone. And so I, I, I don't know if that resonates, makes sense, but. Sounds like wisdom to me, Tara. Yeah. Thank you. Like I, I would, you were, you're so well-spoken and you're obviously very smart and very, you know what you're talking about. I would never think that you would be nervous to come on. So Thank you for sharing that you were. Thank you. Oh, I'm I'm so grateful. Yeah, I just, you know, it just is that, what's that old quote that's been around forever? It's like, you just be kind. You just literally never know what someone's struggling with. Well, Tara, we thank you so much for your time tonight. And it means so much to us and so much to a lot of people. And guys listening, we hope that you circle back to this episode multiple times because I believe that there's so much in here So I want you to replay this a week from now, two weeks from now, a year from now. There's a lot of baseline concrete things here that can affect and infect change across a lot of people. Thank you for joining us, Tara. We appreciate you. We love you so much. Thanks for being a part of this today. 